Welcome to another episode of Locked Up and Locked Out. In this episode, we're talking about the war on drugs. Before we talk about the history of the war on drugs, let's talk about why the criminalization of drug use does not actually decrease drug use. Addiction and drug use is a public health problem, not a criminal issue. Heavy punishments have been proven to be ineffective in discouraging drug use. In 2018, a study by the Pew Research Center found no relationship between drug imprisonment rates and states' drug problems. To quote the study, higher rates of drug imprisonment did not translate into lower rates of drug use, arrests, or overdose deaths. And not only is the criminalization approach ineffective, it's also expensive. It is estimated that since the beginning of the war on drugs in 1971, it has cost the United States $1 trillion. We need to look at the causes of drug use and take a prevention approach in order to have the most impact. We must treat addiction as the disease that it is. Disease is not solved by being locked up. It's solved by treatment and prevention. The war on drugs has focused on the funding of criminal enforcement of drug laws, not prevention or treatment. In the words of attorney and author Tess Borden, locking people up for using drugs causes tremendous harm while doing nothing to help those who need and want treatment. How might we prevent the use and sale of drugs? Well, we need to invest in our communities to ensure that everyone has access to jobs, education, and basic resources like food and housing. All of these things will make it so less people are using and selling drugs in the first place. From personal experience, I've seen the impact of taking a prevention approach to substance abuse. I've worked with Communities That Care, an organization that uses the prevention approach to decrease substance abuse among youth. We focus on what are called risk factors and protective factors. Risk factors are things that make someone more likely to use drugs, like an unstable home life, mental health issues, antisocial behavior, or having experienced violence. Protective factors are things that make someone less likely to use drugs, like the presence of trusted adults, reliable access to food and shelter, positive friendships, and a stable home life. The goal is to increase the protective factors in the community and decrease risk factors. This approach centers around investing and improving our communities, which will therefore decrease drug use. This model has been shown to be effective and is backed by research. Communities that care is just a small example of how we can approach drug abuse in the US. As a country, we need to stop spending as much on drug enforcement and criminalization and start using that money to invest in our communities and prevent drug use in the first place. How do we treat drug addiction once it happens? Certainly not by sending people to prison for years. Treatment programs and harm reduction strategies must be the focus for those already using drugs. Heavy criminalization of drugs only increases the shame and stigma around addiction and makes it even harder to get treatment. We we must ask ourselves what our ultimate goal is. Is it to punish people who are immoral enough to use drugs? Is it to target and control the most vulnerable in our society? Or is it to decrease drug use overall? If our goal is actually to decrease drug use, then we need to take a very different approach to drugs than we have been. Let's talk about the history of the war on drugs. It all starts with the Nixon administration. In 1971, Nixon declared a war on drugs, calling drug abuse public enemy number one. He increased the size of drug enforcement agencies, began the practice of mandatory sentencing and no-knock warrants, And in a now-famous quote, John Ehrlichman, a top aide to Nixon, later admitted the racial motives of the war on drugs. 
You want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. This was the start of heavily increased criminalization of drugs and the roots of an epidemic of mass incarceration, but it would only get much worse from here. What's interesting is that along with heavy criminalization of drugs, Nixon also funded treatment, education, and prevention, much more than future administrations. While there's no doubt that Nixon was racist and there were racist and political motives to the war on drugs, Nixon probably also genuinely really didn't like drugs. The Nixon administration planted the seed, though, for the rest of the drug war. The criminalization of drugs and disregard for prevention and treatment will only increase after this. Ronald Reagan's administration notched up the zero-tolerance policy on drugs. The Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 allocated an additional $1.7 billion to fight the war on drugs. It also added 29 new mandatory minimum sentences for drug use, which was an enormous amount considering that until this point, there had only been 55 minimum sentences in the legal system as a whole. And there was a shocking difference between the punishments for crack cocaine and powder cocaine. For the distribution of just five grams of crack, there was a mandatory minimum of a five-year prison sentence. However, for powder cocaine distribution of 500 grams, 100 times the amount of crack cocaine, had that same five-year sentence. This discrepancy in sentencing has nothing to do with the difference in the danger of each form of cocaine. They are chemically close to identical. The only difference between crack and powder cocaine was the race of the users. Black people were more likely to use crack cocaine, and white people were more likely to use powder cocaine. The form of cocaine mostly used by black people had 100 times the punishment for the same amount. Before these mandatory minimum sentences were enacted, the average federal drug sentence for African Americans was 11% higher than for whites. Only four years later, the average federal drug sentence for African Americans was 49% higher. It's clear that the war on drugs continued to be racially motivated. The year before the Anti-Drug Abuse Act was passed, only 2% to 6% of Americans considered drug abuse to be the nation's number one problem. So why were politicians so intensely focused on the drug war if almost all Americans considered other issues to be more important? Race and racism is one of the core motivations. During Bill Clinton's presidency, the war on drugs was becoming more and more of a literal war. Federal programs used equipment transfers and increased funding to support the militarization of the police. For example, the 1033 program in the 90s, which allowed the U.S. Department of Defense to transfer military equipment to local law enforcement agencies, specifically for the aggressive enforcement of the war on drugs. SWAT teams and local police departments were used for low-level drug raids and to execute search warrants. In a review by the American Civil Liberties Union, 79% of SWAT deployments were for executing a search warrant, most of the time for a drug investigation. Only 7% of SWAT team deployments were for hostage, barricade, or active shooter scenarios. 
It's clear that the heavy militarization of police was aimed at escalating the drug war. Black neighborhoods became the battleground for this war, and the disturbing militarization of our local police forces continues to this day. The war on drugs has been ineffective and significantly decreasing drug use. What it has done is locked up countless people, ruined countless lives, and continued racial inequities. That's all for this episode. My sources and further reading are available at the link in the podcast description. In the next episode, I will discuss what mass incarceration is and its effects.